Uh, well, welcome to church, everyone. Um, I have personally really missed uh, uh, preaching up here in person, um, so I'm really excited to uh, share God's word uh, to you all. Uh, before I do, let's ask God for some help, shall we? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we count it an honor and a privilege to be gathered here in person among the saints, all who have been saved by the blood of our Lord Jesus, to celebrate our Lord, and to learn from him and to hear your word. Father, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, may you grant us? And what we are not, by your spirit, would you make us through the preaching of your word? May it come and fall heavily on us. Change us, Lord, we pray. And it's through Jesus' name. Amen. So we finally arrived. And no, I'm not talking about the launch service, which is, of course, uh, next week. But after 12 chapters, seven sermons, and two long, grueling months, we've arrived at the end of Nehemiah. And like every good story, in the beginning, remember, we were introduced to the main protagonists, the good characters. The main characters. Once upon a time, you might put it, there was a dude named Nehemiah, and there were the people of Israel. And these two protagonists faced a major problem, rebuilding Jerusalem. And like every good story, there is always bad guys. The task is hindered by the so-called antagonists. Tobiah, Sanballat, and a slew of other so-called peoples of the land. Throughout the book itself, there's conflict, there's intrigue, there's drama, tension, challenges. But eventually, at the end of it, the protagonists prevail. The antagonists are defeated and the problem is resolved and the people celebrate. The city is restored, the people return home and they lived happily ever after which is where we left our story at the end of chapter 12. That's a good story, isn't it? A nice little resolution. We expect the book to end. The story of Nehemiah, it seems, is neatly concluded at the end of chapter 12. But as we flip the page, there is one final chapter. And like an end of the end of credit scene in every Marvel movie to date, we are unexpectedly faced with another scene. Instead of a happily ever after, chapter 13 paints a very different picture of what we might expect. The conflict we thought was resolved is still here. The antagonists we thought were defeated and exiled, like Tobiah, is still here. And at the end of chapter 13, we're left scratching our heads as the story seems to leave us with right where we started in chapter 1. With the people of God failing to deliver on the promises to God, with Jerusalem physically rebuilt, yes, but far from being fully restored, and Nehemiah wondering what it was all for. So what is going on here? Wasn't the story finished already? The so-called launch service went ahead. People came. 
They dwelt in Jerusalem. They celebrated. They sang. They committed to live very different lives. And real, see, real change seemed to have happened. Well, let's take a closer look at what's happening in this chapter by looking at the two uh, protagonists that we have uh, continued the story alongside. And that's the people of God and Nehemiah. So we're looking at first the people. So at the end of chapter 12, we remember that the people were doing so well. They seemed to have t- taken God's word to heart. To, uh, they, they took it seriously. They acted upon it. It seemed like revival even broke out. God's people are on fire to worship Him. And then in chapter 13, we are once again introduced to Eliashib, uh, whom we were actually acquainted to previously, and he was among one of the uh, pastors of God's people. And he was given responsibility tending to the temple, the place where God dwelt. Serious job. But here, in this passage, we are told that he is related to Tobiah by marriage, one of the main antagonists of the story. And probably as a family favor, he rents out a room in the temple of the holy God so that it can be used as storage. The place where God's people dwell, uh, the place where God's people met God, the place where God dwelt amongst his people, a room is being used as a warehouse for a non-believer. Seems a bit strange that this is happening, but we continue on. We also find that the Levites and the singers, which I guess if you could contextualize it in 2020, would be the church staff and the paid music team. They were not being paid. And to support themselves, they didn't work at church on Sunday. They worked in the fields rather than working in the temple. These are the same people, remember, a couple of sermons ago, that eagerly committed to giving not a tenth of their income, which is the traditional amount, but a third of their income to the house of the Lord. This was in chapter 9 and 10. And now, only three chapters later, they fail. And also, to top it off, the people of God were working and doing business on the Sabbath. That's a big no-no for the Jews. And that's also another thing they committed not to do a mere three chapters ago. So all of us, I'd guess, love listening to stories that have a happy ending. We love watching movies that have a happy ending. But this is not one of those stories. You see, almost everything that the people promised to do for God is broken in chapter 13. To summarize, their commitment fades. Their conviction weakens. As readers of this story, it's understandable that we might be a little shocked. We kind of expected a happily ever after. But if Nehemiah is true, if it is a historical event, and we believe as Christians it is, then true stories often reflect reality. And if this story is meant to reflect reality, then it really shouldn't be that that much of a surprise for us. Because 
Imagine placing yourself or ourselves in the shoes of the people in Nehemiah. Would we do any better? Rather than being the ideal standard to work towards, the people in Nehemiah, at the end of the day, are more like mirrors that show our own reflection. Doesn't our commitment fade? Doesn't our conviction weaken? Look back to the beginning of 2020. Many of us, most if not all of us, were excited for this church. When we talked to Pastor Paul and said, I am in, I am committed. How committed were we to this new thing that God was doing amongst us? The excitement was real. The commitment was real. We thought that would last forever. But look at 2020. It wasn't an easy ride. There were bumps. There were ups and downs. We lost our building. We went on Zoom. So many things happened. And throughout all of that, wasn't it a little bit hard to maintain that excitement throughout it all? Wasn't it hard to commit and stick to the promises that you made to yourself or even to maybe Pastor Paul as you said, yes, I am in. Our commitment and conviction seem anything but stable. So that is the reality. Why does that happen then? Why did it happen for the people in Nehemiah? Wasn't the vibe of the story in Nehemiah one of real, lasting, genuine change? Didn't they deal with their main problem? Remember, in every good story, there is an overarching problem. And the problem, we thought, and we were told, were the people of the land. Those who were not of the people of God. Those who were outside of God's people that were trying to influence them to sin. The non-believers that tried to corrupt them and turn them away to worship other gods. Weren't they the problem? Didn't they just deal with them? Didn't they just build the wall? And yes, they did. But the people forgot that it wasn't just the people out there that were the problem. It was also the person in here. The human heart the same human heart that you and I have right now. Later on in the prophecy of Jeremiah, sums up really nicely, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? See, even as they succeeded in removing, removing the external influence of sin, they failed to recognize that their own sin is found within them. The mistake the people of God had made was thinking that the evil people, that the evil that they were meant to deal with were out there, the, the Amorites, the, the Moabites, the, the non-Israelites, the pagans of other nations. And they thought that as long as they separated themselves from them, they could at last make their own little utopia. But as one uh, philosopher might say, if only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. 
but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Those are wise words for us. You see, all throughout the story of Nehemiah, we were led to believe that the people were the good ones, facing off against the antagonists out there. But there was a hidden enemy throughout it all, not out there, but in here. I can't help but make parallels between the story of Nehemiah and where we are at with the story of King's Way. The situation we are in now as a church isn't all that different from where the people were at the end of chapter 12. Things are getting better for us, aren't they? About a month or two ago, we had no building, no prospect of meeting together. The future was in question about what to do with our Christmas service. And here we are in this big, beautiful building, worshipping together in person. Here we are with the laws providentially relaxing two weeks ago, and we are singing together as the people of God. I mean, even preaching, the fact that I'm preaching to you in person is a good thing. And I don't know if I got permission from Mark, but I'll just share it anyway. The, um, we have almost 90 people confirmed to come and check us out next week. That looks like a revival to me. Bring on the revival. The excitement is palpable. We can almost smell it. But, like the people in the story, every one of us has a heart that is prone to sin, prone to forget, prone to fail. And if there's one thing that I can guarantee in the midst of the hype, is that in time, it will die down. The hype of the new always dies down in time. And the mundane, regular Sunday routine will eventually kick in. How will your sense of commitment be then? Kingsway, do not forget that there is an inner enemy in all of us that we need to address. This inner enemy wants nothing more than to take away your excitement that you feel right now and replace it with cynicism. To rob you of your conviction and replace it with compromise. The first step in defending ourselves against this enemy is to not make the mistake that the Israelites did and to recognize that it exists. Because if we don't, the failure of the people in Nehemiah may indeed be a failure that is just around the corner for our church. We don't want that, do we? So that's the people. They're not doing too well. The first of the two protagonists, they fail miserably in the end. What about the other one? What about Nehemiah? Well, here's the thing. First, he leaves his people straight after the revival happens, straight after he plants the people of God in the land. He says, while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. So he doesn't stay around to disciple people properly. 
to raise up new competent leaders. So he's kind of away, not leading as he should be. Second, when he does return and he sees the, the compromise of the people, he kind of loses it, doesn't he? He sees how bad the situation has gotten. He goes into the uh, house, uh, the room that Eliashib rented out to Tobiah, and he just chucks furniture around. He grabs everything in the storage room and just throws it out. After that, he does something interesting. He confronts the disobedient people, as any good leader should, but he starts swearing at them in anger. Starts using words that you may not find in a typical movie. Words that we shouldn't say in church. And not even that, on top of that, he even attacks them physically, punches them, hits them. The Bible says he pulled out their hair. But one commentator actually says that that phrase is a euphemism for scalping the heads of enemies. And to top it all off, he forces them to take oaths in the name of God, which is breaking one of the Ten Commandments. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Oh, and sorry, I missed another one. Oh, so it keeps getting better. He doesn't ask God for help. He asks God to recognize his own actions. At least I did better than the rest. I don't know about everybody else, God, but I did okay. Remember me, O oh God, concerning this. Do not wipe out my good deeds. Remember this also in my favor, O oh my God. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. It kind of sounds scarily familiar to the Pharisee that Jesus talks about in the Gospel of Luke, where he says, thank you, God, that I am not like these other people. The final proof we need of how terrible Nehemiah is in chapter 13 is not in his behavior, but in the silence of the book itself. The fact that the book does not end with the people repenting. The fact that it does not end with another revival. We kind of expect that to happen, but all we get is Nehemiah's words, remember me for good. It just ends. Now, you might have been shocked at how the chapter portrays Nehemiah. And that's justifiable because throughout the book, uh, Nehemiah is in general a great leader, isn't he? He was portrayed to be a strong and capable and reliable man who leads the people to restore the city of Jerusalem, who, who combats the opponents and confronts every problem. But in the end, he is no saviour. He is still just a man. For those of us here who are in any leadership capacity, remember that you and I are, even at our very best, just a man or a woman. But for all of us, the lesson to glean from in this situation, in Nehemiah's reality, is the imperfect reality of our earthly leaders. Yes, leaders seek excellence, and we should seek excellence. 
Leaders should seek to live a godly life and set an example for the rest of the people, the standards by which we are measured. Brothers and sisters, if you are a leader, the bar is higher. And we, as leaders, must make decisions based not on our own personal interests, but for the sake of others. We should lead with wisdom and prayer and submit every decision before the Lord. Even so, leaders are imperfect. And more importantly, none of them are our saviour. As readers, we expect Nehemiah to come back to Jerusalem after hearing about what's going on and kick things into overdrive. We kind of expect him to do his thing, fix the city up and end the story on another high note. But he doesn't because he couldn't. Like Nehemiah, we might expect as we move forward with this church to fix the many problems we face. Because, yeah, there there will be problems as we move forward with this church. Could be people problems. Could be structural problems. You name it, the list can go on and on. And our leaders should do their very best to address them. But they will not be our saviour. We have seen that the people's problem was not only out there beyond the city walls, but it was in here within the human heart. And we should not expect anything else or anything less from our leaders, or anything more, rather, from our leaders. Because Nehemiah's problem was also within himself. His short temper and aggressive response was a direct response and a result of his heart. His ultimate failure at producing a lasting reformation in the people was because he was not a separate person apart from the people, but he was part of the people that he was called to lead. In Kingsway, our leaders, it could be Pastor Paul, it could be our uh, interim council and our future elder board, it could be our ministry and growth group leaders. So far, we have worked very hard at building a church that is ready to launch, and they ought to be commended for that. But like Pastor Paul preached last week, the, the work has only just begun, hasn't it? Challenges, both known and unknown, lie ahead. And with them, May I remind everyone that failure is possible and most likely at some level probable. For the leaders of Kingsway, I encourage you and exhort you to do your best. But don't try to be what you are not. We are leaders of this church. We are not its saviour. And for all of us at Kingsway, our leaders absolutely will do their best. But remember, they're only our leaders. They're not our saviour. So that was Nehemiah. We have looked at two of our protagonists. The people, Nehemiah, and both fail in our final chapter. Like I began before, in the beginning of this sermon, there is no happily ever after. Instead, the book leaves us with a hanging, lingering question. What now? The revival has fizzled out. The Reformation has failed. It seems like at the end of chapter 13, the people go back to the same life that they had 
before everything that's happened in the story. Nehemiah, as leader, fails. The silence of the book is deafening. I mean, if the two protagonists are fatally flawed, then who can fix the problem? And rather than a solution, Nehemiah concludes with this question unanswered. Who then can save this people? There is one character that you might have expected throughout all of the book of Nehemiah to come across. He's kind of an important character in the Bible. Some would say maybe the the main character. Can you take a guess at who that might be? This is where audience participation comes in. Can you guys yell it out for me? Who do you think it might be? Yep, I can't, I can't hear louder. Yes, thank you, Peter. We expected God to be in the story, right? I mean, of course, after all, this is the Bible. But Nehemiah is actually one of only three books in the Bible where God is not present, at least physically, at least as a character. It's one of those books where God does not actually say a single word. And like a character hidden behind the, uh, behind the curtain, the third and most important protagonist does not have any lines to speak in the story itself. And yet, because it is Scripture, as good Christians, we know that he is still there, isn't, isn't it? He's still there in the room, present and ready to jump in. And God does respond to this question, but not at the end of Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah, in fact, is the last historical record recorded in the Bible before the New Testament. This is how the story of the Old Testament ends. Who then can save the people? And we know that God responds in the New Testament. And I think the words of the Gospel of John makes it really clear. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God answers with one word, the Word, Jesus. After being silent throughout the story of Nehemiah, after being silent for the next 400 years after the book of Nehemiah, God answers the question, that this book has left us with. If the people of God at their best could not restore the city of God, who else is able to? It's God himself in the flesh dwelling amongst his people. Where the people of God failed in Nehemiah, Jesus, we know, succeeds. In Nehemiah, Israel fails. But Jesus, as the true Israel, succeeds in perfect obedience on our behalf, does he not? In Nehemiah, Nehemiah as leader himself fails, but Jesus as the ultimate Nehemiah, if you will, as our true leader of our Reformation, succeeds in restoring the people of God. Not by aggression, not by force, not by coercion, but by humbling himself as a servant, taking our punishment in our place. 
Chapter 13 in Nehemiah revealed two things. Number one, the people's problem is not just out there, it is in here. And number two, the people's solution is not going to be in its leaders. In Jesus, the problem in here is dealt with. In Jesus, he gives us a new heart. And where earthly leaders fail us, Jesus as our true leader never does. The foundation of God's people today is not in its people. It's not in its leaders. It's not in us. It's not in our leaders. But in Jesus Christ. And remember the words that Jesus shared with the Apostle Peter. Such comforting words. That upon this rock of Jesus, even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is the promise that God gives us in Jesus. As the story of God's people in Nehemiah comes to an end, and as we look to next week, the story of King's Way is now about to begin. Well, will we do better than the people in Nehemiah's day? Of course we will. Because if the conclusion to Nehemiah was the conclusion to the Bible, then of course the answer would be no. We are no different than the people in Nehemiah. This is an expected outcome of people with the human heart. But we know that there is more to the story. We have one thing that the people in Nehemiah did not have. We have Jesus. And He makes all the difference in the world. As I close off this talk and this sermon series and we launch into our church next week, keep Jesus first. As long as we keep Jesus first, I can guarantee you we will not fail. We, we cannot fail. That is our application as we move forward. Keep Jesus first. It's not about how well we keep up with our commitments. Although keep committed. It's not about how perfect our leaders are. Though as leaders we ought to try our best. It's about making everything in our church, despite our imperfections, all about Jesus. What are your friends and your family members going to say, those whom you have invited next week, when they come to check out our church? Are they going to remember that our church is all about Jesus? Trust our church in Jesus' hands. Boast about Jesus. Do not be ashamed of Jesus. Talk about it. Have faith that Jesus will look after us. Jesus will keep us together. I mean, he promised that he would build his church, didn't he? And if Jesus is with us, and I believe he surely is, even today, right now, in this moment, even the gates of hell, and whatever comes out of that gate will never prevail against Kingsway. What a, what a beautiful promise that Jesus gives us. Yes, if we're honest, our commitment and conviction will waver. Maybe it's wavered from time to time throughout this year. Mine has as well. We're all human. We're all sinners. But Jesus' commitment and conviction to his church will never waver. How good is that? 
It will never fade. It will never change. And yes, our leaders are imperfect. And as one of them, let me just say, I'm probably the most imperfect of them all. But Jesus, as our true leader, was and is and always will be perfect. And he will perfectly lead us. And that is why chapter 13 is not going to be our story. It's not going to be our story. Because in its place, we have Jesus. And I look forward to what our story will be as we join Jesus in building Kingsway Evangelical Church. Join me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son. We thank you that he is our guarantee. He is our hope. He is our life. He is our righteousness. He is our way. He is everything to us. And we thank you that as a church, we are committed to seeing Jesus made great amongst us. Father, we thank you that you did not leave us without Jesus, but you gave us Jesus, and we have him now. Help us to hold tightly onto him, to never let him go, to make it all about him, so that Kingsway Evangelical Church might not only endure, but it might prosper, that it might be a beacon of light in the city of Sydney, that it might be that city on a hill, a light that is not hidden underneath a basket, but put on a stand so that it might give the light of life to all who are around us. Father, we pray for next week and every week and every moment that we gather together as Kingsway Evangelical Church. Help us to keep Jesus front and center. And we thank you that as we have him, we will never fail. We count it a privilege and honor to do this with our Lord Jesus. May he keep us. May he be with us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.